Our Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you for the fact that your word is life, that it can awaken and uh, resurrect dead spirits and dead hearts. It can transform and renew lives and minds, Lord God, to shape us and mold us into the image of Christ. We thank you as well, Lord God, that uh, it is your spirit who helps us understand uh, your word, especially uh, difficult passages such as the one we're going to look at this morning. We ask, Lord, for the continued help of your spirit, not only in helping us to understand your word, but also how to apply it, how we may be, uh, in practical ways, salt and light, witnesses for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord God, that uh, this morning, as we have uh, sought your forgiveness, as we have acknowledged our need uh, for grace, upon grace, uh, that that grace would now overflow into an understanding of your word, a desire to serve you because of it, that we would be changed, Father, for the better, that in all things Christ will be glorified. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, before I read Zechariah 14, which I have already indicated is a, it's a difficult passage, there's no doubt, I'm reminded of a quote a friend of mine back years ago in ministry uh, who I knew in Canada, he had served in a tiny, tiny town, you can look it up on uh, Google Maps, called Lac La Biche, Alberta. And uh, Lac La Biche was so small and so far north, my friend said, uh, it's not quite the end of the world, but you can see it from there. <laughs> Zechariah 14 isn't quite this half, it isn't quite the end of the book, but we can see the end uh, of Zechariah, and it does present us with some challenges. I want to read in context uh, starting in verse 7 of chapter 13 and then through to the entire uh, uh, chapter 14. And uh, we'll see what the, what the Lord has in this. So you know that the end of chapter 13 begins with this uh, word from the Lord himself. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire, and refine them as one refines silver, and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on a mount of olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light, 
On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site, from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's winepresses. And it shall be inhabited. For there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them so that each will seize the hand of another And the hand of one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. All right, so there it is. Even a superficial reading of Zechariah 14 uh, is going to leave us uh, not just bewildered, but somewhat perplexed. The the language and the imagery is rather graphic. So how are we to make sense of the events that are described in this? It's a very apocalyptic chapter, reminiscent of some of the scenes in the Revelation at the end of time. Uh, it's, it's a difficult and challenging chapter, as I've, I've said. Even Martin Luther, the great reformer, found Zechariah 14 perplexing and bewildering. He wrote two commentaries, uh, Luther, on Zechariah. He wrote his first one in Latin, where he was so frustrated by the events, uh, what the Zechariah described, he left chapter 14 out. A year later, he thought better of it, and he made another, trans- another commentary, this time in German, where he did include Zechariah 14, but then he introduced the commentary to that chapter with this statement. Here in this chapter, I give up. <laughs> For I am not sure what the prophet is talking about. And he was true to his word. He wrote very, very few remarks about Zechariah 14. And as if sensing the disappointment of his students who would be reading this commentary, he concluded with this invitation. Whoever can do better has sufficient opportunity and leave for that. So with that caveat in mind, 
<laughs> maybe foolishly trading into uh, this chapter. Here we go, pushing aside our bewilderment. We're going to look at the first half of Zechariah 14, 1 to 11, and then we'll take up 12 to 21 next week. One thing is clear about this chapter, if not throughout the entire prophecy, and that is that God is not safe. He is not safe because he's holy. And because God is holy, he is dangerous, and he is especially dangerous to those who will not turn from their sin and return to him in repentance and faith. And this theme of holiness is going to carry through this chapter, if not the book. And I've been greatly helped in understanding God's holiness and how it applies to Zechariah 14 by a book written a number of years ago by a former professor of theology at Gordon-Conwell named David Wells. Wells has written a series of books about God and culture, and one of the books he wrote is called God in the Wasteland. And uh, he writes in that book about God's holiness as being more or less synonymous with his awesome majesty, his greatness, his power. And he finishes that thought this way. He says, the reason that God is separate, high, and lifted up is his consuming, burning purity. This is what makes him dangerous. And this is what the Israelites had to learn by hard experience because his holiness was foundational to God's entire working with them. That God is dangerous in his holiness should not be dismissed as if it were a primitive idea beyond which we have now evolved. So we'll never evolve beyond the fact that God is holy, and because God is holy, he is dangerous. And knowing that, keeping that in mind, then the events of Zechariah 14 become come into clearer focus. God's consuming, burning purity is why he refines that third of the remnant. It's why he refines them like silver and tests them like gold. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, God is not safe, but he is good, and he is holy. He makes us holy because he is holy, and he does that through this process of refinement and testing. That's the reason why he does that. He is, at the same time, dangerous and holy. He is also loving and kind and compassionate and merciful. It's actually an uh, an act of love when God refines, if you will, the sinfulness and the depravity out of us because he is expressing his anger at the thing that is preventing us from having full fellowship with him. It's also important to remember that in the midst of all of that refining, in the midst of all of that testing, in the midst of all that God is doing, to remember the promise that he makes at the end of chapter 13. The reason why God refines, the reason why God tests, is so that we will call upon him, and God will answer. And he will say, they are my people, and uh, I, I will say, they are my people, and they will say, I am their God. So difficult days may lie ahead. We read about them from Luke's gospel, Jesus talking to the apostles, telling them about the difficult and dark days that would accompany those who would serve him. And in the midst of that, we have this wonderful assurance from God that even as we're being refined and tested, he is our God and we are his people. So the theme of Zechariah 14 is very simple and very clear, that God's holiness guarantees the holiness of his people. 
that on the day of the Lord, on the day that he finally comes, because that's what's being described here in Zechariah 14, when God finally comes to redeem, to rescue, and to restore his people, to recover them finally from this world, everyone will see his awesome majesty, his greatness, and his power. Those who worship him now will worship him then, and likely with a greater joy than we've never known. Those who do not worship him now, well, they can't expect on that day to experience the the withering judgment of his consuming, burning purity. That's a consistent message through the prophecy. So if God's holiness guarantees the holiness of his people... If we look at the, the chapter, we'll just unpack it. So the, the, the first thing, verses 1 to 3, the holiness of God means that we will be refined as silver and tested as gold. The, the first three verses lay this out, that behold, a day is coming. Remember, you've got to keep in mind, too, that the banner over all of the events happening in Zechariah 14, the banner over that is, they will call and I will answer them. They will say, he is my God and, and I, I am their God. Right, So the whole thing is upheld by the fact that God is upholding his people. So a day is coming uh, for the Lord when the spoil taken from you, meaning Jerusalem, will be divided in your midst. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women ravished. Half of the city uh, shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off in the city. That's a two-thirds and a one-thirds being spoken about here. And then in verse 3, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. So when the people of Jerusalem, who are believing to dwell in safety, lift their eyes to the hills, they see God gathering the nations against them. That instead of God being their refuge and strength, he is now their judge and adversary. This has happened in the past. Remember, it's how God allowed the Babylonians to invade the city because of the disobedience of the nation. So this is one of those hearkening back to what God has done in the past, which he'll now do in the future in the purpose of purifying his people. So instead of God leading his people into battle at this point, he's leading the nation to do battle against them. But remember, they will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. Don't overlook the promise that's also made in verse 3. Just when all seems lost, when everything is darkest, like those old-time movies, right? You know, the, the, the cavalry comes, or the hero intervenes. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights in the day of battle. So the immediate context of Zechariah 14 is grounded in God's warning at the very start of the book. As he warns the, the exiles that he's returned to Jerusalem, he says, look, I have returned you... A, in keeping my promise made to your ancestors when I first sent them into captivity. My warning and my encouragement to you is don't be like your forefathers, but return to me in repentance and faith, and I will continue to bless you and prosper you. So that's the immediate context of that. The historical context of uh, Zechariah 14 is in fact grounded in, in Jesus' prophecy that we read from Luke 21 as well as Matthew 24 and Mark 13. That there was a time in Israel's history, likely around 70 AD, when Rome invaded Jerusalem and 
annihilated it for the last and final time. And then in a broader context of Zechariah 14, we have the spanning of the entire age of the church between the time of Christ's resurrection and his return. And remember, everything that transpires in 14 flows out of the promise made at the end of 13. They are my people, and the Lord is my God. So God is doing things here. So there's one, a couple of reasons why I think this is happening. So you have in this chapter the two-thirds that are cut off and the one-third that's refined. So one reason why this is happening is because God is taking that one-third, that remnant that will call upon him for whom he is their God, that these events are right in keeping with God's character as he deals with his beloved. Proverbs 3, 11, and 12, which, was, which is later on quoted in Hebrews 12, the Solomon writes, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father in whom he delights. We see this in the New Testament as well. Not just in Hebrews. But you read the opening chapters of Mark's Gospel. At the end of Mark 3, Jesus comes forward to be baptized by John the Baptist. He's baptized in the Jordan River. As he comes out of the waters of his baptism, the skies are literally ripped apart. The Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove, and there is a voice, the voice of God the Father speaking, says, This is my beloved Son in whom I delight. And then you know what happens next? Here God has declared his love for his Son. He has anointed him for this ministry of redemption. And the very next thing, after saying, this is my beloved son in whom I delight, the Spirit leads him into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the enemy. So, all for the purpose of Christ passing the probation, the test, that Adam failed. So when God leads us into difficult and trying situations, Know that it is because he loves us, and it is because this is the way a loving father trains us and disciplines us, that he does it in the same way that a loving father cares for his children, that he directs his love at us in a way to refine us, to remove from us every trace of that which is unholy. But what about the two-thirds? The two-thirds suffer because of the failure of Israel's leaders, its kings, its priests, and its prophets. They fail to be holy as God is holy. And we all know, not just from the Bible, but in history, and maybe even current events, bad leaders lead to bad consequences. That as the leader of the nation goes, so goes the nation certainly true in Israel. And rather than lead the people to follow God and God alone, the kings, the priests, and the prophets encouraged the worship of idols. They formed unwise military and political alliances, and they ended up compromising the integrity of the law. So there is good reason why the two-thirds are judged. They have followed their leaders rather than calling their leaders to account. The other thing, I think, that brings us to mind another reason. You know, the kings and the prophets and the priests were all men. And I believe it's the failure of men, particularly the men in Israel, to fulfill their responsibility 
to lead their families in the worship of God and the worship of God alone. That sounds terribly patriarchal. I, I realize that. But the Bible clearly places the larger burden of responsibility for the spiritual health and vitality for one's family, one's marriage, one's children on men. It was, after all, Adam's failure in the garden to hold Eve accountable for her disobedience, passively going along with her disobedience, that led to the tragedy of the fall, which then necessitated, certainly within God's will, the cross. I have no way to prove that. It's just a sense that I get. But I have known in my experience, I have noticed that passive men, particularly church men, tend to produce passive faith. And one of the things I am encouraged about by uh, just observing and talking to the men of our church, and certainly among the leadership, is our desire and the desire among the men in our church to take that responsibility not in a a heavy-handed way, but in a loving way to lead their families in reading the Scripture, studying the Scripture, applying the Scripture, praying with their wives, praying with and for their children, setting that example. It's a healthy thing to do, enabling and showing our children and our spouses how to call upon the name of the Lord, expecting that He will answer that we would call him our God and he would then say we are his people. And so there is good reason why God refines the faithful and then cuts off the unfaithful for their disobedience, for their rebellion. Whatever the exact reason for the events that are described in the opening part of Zechariah 14, one thing is sure is that it underlines the seriousness with which God treats his holiness and the seriousness with which he expresses his desire for his people to be holy as he is holy. And the holiness of God means that we are going to be refined as silver and tested as gold, all for the purpose of learning how to call upon his name that we may be more refined, more pure as his people, and we would worship him as well. And so the holiness of God means that we'll be refined as silver and tested like gold, It also means the holiness of God. It guarantees that God will fight for his people. Verses 4 and 5, On that day, speaking of the Lord, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal, And you shall flee as you fled in the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Now the Mount of Olives, I'll be honest, I've never been to Israel. So everything I know about Israel, I've read about in books. So all I can tell you is it lies uh, somewhere to the east of Jerusalem. It's 2,700 feet high. It rises 300 feet above the city of Jerusalem, above the Temple Mount. So that makes it the highest point. You can see it from the city. Uh, It's always, I mean, so it's there. It's visible. It's a place that is going to make the Lord's return possible that everyone can see him uh, and all the holy ones with him. 
We also know that in Acts 1, the Mount of Olives is the place where Jesus ascends into heaven. In that very, and I think very humorous scene where here Jesus is taken up in the clouds and the, the eleven are kind of looking at him like this as he goes up. And then we're told two angels appear and they, they look at the apostles, what do you look up in the sky for? The, the same way he ascended is the same way he returned. You've got work to do and he sends them into the city. So he's going to come back. Every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and everyone who trusted him will run to him for refuge. And so when Jesus comes back, the promise is that he will make right everything that's wrong. Now, some scholars, when they look at Zechariah 14, say everything that's in this chapter will happen only in the future, at some time way beyond even our own time. Others believe, um, I think probably more accurately, that what's happening here are events being described that will occur his periodically throughout the history of the church until Christ returns. That re- regardless of what view you take. One thing is sure about this is that the New Testament writers certainly viewed the ministry of Jesus through the lens of Zechariah 14. The, uh, Jesus is going to build his church. And as Jesus builds his church, his bride is going to encounter opposition. We read about that in Luke 21. We know that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him won't die, but have everlasting life. We can quote that from memory. You read a little further in John 3, and you begin to understand why the church will face and continues to face ongoing opposition in the world right up until the time Jesus comes back. Verses 18 and 19 of John 3 say this. This is Jesus speaking. Whoever believes in the Son is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. And so it's because people continue to love darkness the church will face continual opposition and an ever-increasing hostility. And according to Zechariah, even John the Gospel writer, John the Revelator as well, a day is coming when this hostility will become so overwhelming that all will appear to be lost. That if Jerusalem represents the church and the people of God, um, everything is going to be sort of on the edge. But Jesus said, you know, take heart, you're going to have tribulation in this world. I have overcome the world. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. On the day when all seems lost, we have this assurance from God that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb who is slain from the foundation of the world, the Lion from the tribe of Judah, he will appear. He will stand on the Mount of Olives, and he will part the Mount of Olives the same way that Moses, with God's help, parted the Red Sea. We see a picture of this certainly at Christ's crucifixion. You read Matthew 27, and you look there. When Jesus is crucified, when he gives up his spirit, we're told at that point from Matthew's perspective that the veil in the temple is torn from top to bottom. There was an earthquake, and he says, and rocks were split. And that... Splitting of the rocks is reminiscent of what happens here in Zechariah 14. 
Because on the day of Christ's crucifixion, a way was open for people to be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the wrath of God against our sin and rebellion and depravity against him. And so in the day of his return, mimicking what happened at his crucifixion, we have on the day of his return his full coronation. And the valley that is open is open for those who can then escape in the same way that John will say in Revelation, escape, flee from Babylon, free from this uh, world that is going to be condemned, flee into the safety and refuge of the, the Lamb of God who is slain from the foundation of the world and experience the peace, the joy that comes through Christ. On that day, once again, the people of God will call upon his name and he will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. God fights for his people. He fights for his people here by coming to their rescue and deliverance in Zechariah. But at the cross, God fights for his people by laying down his life. Because that's what the good shepherd does in order to redeem those that he has set apart for himself. So we see how God fights for us by dying for us. We see how God fights for us by coming to rescue us fully and completely. Then next, the the holiness of God guarantees a new creation. In verses 6 and 7, we have, this is a, a difficult passage to translate because the ESV says, On the day that there shall be no light, cold or frost, and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening there shall be light. Uh, every day when I uh, drive from uh, my house uh, apartment in Halden here at 360, I, I take the Jones Road exit from uh, on Route 4. And along Jones Road, I've been watching this house over the past year and a half. Um, apparently it had burned at some point. You may have seen this house. And it was left uh, in its burned out condition for many, many months. And then with just within the last two or three months, the old house was leveled. I mean, it was just torn down. And now there's a completely new structure in its place. Same footprint, but a completely new structure. This is similar to what God is describing here. That a day is coming that in order for God to reverse the effects of sin on humanity and creation... Before there is recreation, there must be decreation. That the consuming, burning purity of God's holiness will demolish this old heaven and old earth and make room for the new heaven and a new earth, which is fresh and clean and bright. We will, at that point, fully be in the presence of God. We will be forever holy and good and righteous. And even the creation itself, which Paul says in Romans 8, has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. It too will be redeemed and renewed and restored. We see this pattern where God decreates in order to recreate. That's what the flood was about. I remember sitting in an Old Testament hermeneutics class with Professor Meredith Klein, just a wee bit of a guy, but with a big brain. And he was going on about how God works in terms of his creation. And I remember being awed by the fact that he talked about how God had 
um, <laughs> the, the, the first world that God had created this went through its own eschaton, its own apocalypse, if you will, at the flood. And at that point, I wanted to raise my hand and say, excuse me, my brain is full, I've got to go ponder this. You think about it, because that's exactly what the flood did. It decreated so that out of that, the ark, which saved eight people, including Noah, enabled God to repopulate the earth with his people. So decreation always precedes recreation. And that's what's happening here. But it all starts, interestingly enough, with God turning off the lights. Verse 6 is, is difficult to translate. Not the first part, there will be no light. That's pretty clear. But the second part, the, the part that says there will neither be cold or frost, is, is difficult. That actually, that translation, no cold or, or cold or frost, that follows what's called the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew itself refers to that cold or frost as congeal or thicken. Um, if you've ever tried to make a white sauce, or, 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 or as my mom used to do, make jello, you wait for the jello to congeal, right? Or, or if, God forbid, you leave the turkey gravy on the stove for too long, right? It's just, sort of, it's just there, right? It gets thick. It's not good for anything. So, in this, so the, the, the translation would be, there shall be no light because it will thicken. In other words, the sun, the moon, and the stars will lose their brightness. They'll become so thick and hazy that you won't be able to see by their light anymore. There's a great reversal that takes place. Decreation. Because at the beginning, in the beginning, what did God say? First act of creation. Let there be light. First act of decreation. Let there be darkness. Let there be, and with the diminution of light, cold and frost come. In the Old Testament, darkness is a sign of judgment. Remember, God created the sun, he created the moon, he created the stars to give light. There were to be signs and indicators of things to come. So, on the day that he returns, God turns off the lights. Why? Because he's the light. <laughs> he's the light. He is the glory of Israel. It is by his light, his life, that we live. It is in him that we live and move and have our being, our being. So that we don't have to, there's no worship of the sun, there's no worship of the moon, there's no worship of the stars. We don't look to them for guidance, but we look to the one who is our light, who is our life, who is our hope. We see this certainly at the end of Revelation, right? With the Lord, there will be no need for light because the Lord himself is the light. And so the, the holiness of God guarantees a new creation. Right? A holy people deserve a holy place to live. Part of what Jesus talked about in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. Well, this is it. <laughs> this decreated, recreated new heaven and new earth. And then lastly, uh, um, well, not lastly, but we got... Uh, anyway, the holiness of God is a source of eternal fellowship with him. Verses 8 and 9. On that day, a living water shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. In other words, the whole world. <laughs> the whole world's going to be covered by this. It shall continue in summer. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. So this river flows out the whole world, that it continues through summer and winter means nothing can stop it. Right? Because what happens to rivers in the wintertime? 
right? freeze. Right? They freeze over, but there's no freezing. This water continually flows, and it flows out from the very presence of God because it's living water. Right? It's water that is emblematic of the one who is living water himself, who is the word of God, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. It brings to mind what Jesus said in John 7, that if anyone hearkens unto him and anyone comes to Jesus Christ, out of him will flow streams of living water. Why? Because we have received living water from the one who is a source of life. You see this in Joel. You see this in Ezekiel. right? Because if you think Zechariah 14 is trippy, try reading Ezekiel 40 and following, 40 to 47 about the temple, which is just a magnificently beautiful description of something we cannot comprehend without divine assistance, where water is flowing from the temple. It starts as a little bitty stream and finally becomes this this torrent that we're able to bathe in. Revelation 22 talks about this as well. John is there. The angel shows him the river, the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were there for the healing of the nations. So, there will be worship of God, full and complete. This is the hope that is meant to sustain us when we're being refined. So, in the midst of your trial, whatever that may be, could be internal strife, could be doubt, could be a bad relationship, could be a bad work situation. It could be a health crisis. It could be a financial crisis. It could be struggling with your own faith in God's faithfulness. What's the thing that God uses in the midst of the refinement and testing to help us hold on to him is this hope that there is this process of refining that does have an ultimate end that there is this glorious outcome that he has. We've sung about this reward. We can experience it now by faith, and we can experience it in a very living way, in a little bit, in a little taste of it, which whets our appetite for more, so that our hope is, is, is firm and substantial. They will be my people, and I will be their God. And then, lastly, uh, the holiness of God guarantees our permanent safety. Uh, verses 10 uh, and 11, the whole land shall be turned into a plain, and then Jerusalem essentially is lifted up. It's just, it's just high above everyone else. It has this place of priority, and it's the residence of the God King. It is the very center of the kingdom of God. And there's this promise that there'll never be a ban, there'll never be war made against it again. It's a picture of peace. The dimensions of the city simply highlight its exalted position. It's very reminiscent of what John sees in Revelation 21. Right? The New Jerusalem descending from heaven, this huge, huge city, 144,000 miles square. This big cube that drops out of the sky. Right? Zechariah 14 is all about celebrating the holiness of God at work in and through the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is meant to inspire faithfulness in us in the midst of difficulty because the easiest thing to do when life gets hard is to give up. It's to say, well, my faith didn't work. I'm going to try something else. The case here is don't do that because God fights for those 
who stand firm in their faith. Zechariah is, is referred to as the fifth gospel because his prophecy is part of the foundation of the apostles and prophets on which the church is built, its mission established, and its protection guaranteed. And then a couple of weeks ago, we, we read, uh, we sang the, the wonderful hymn, How Firm a Foundation, where the hymn writer uh, John Rippon writes, How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you who hath, uh, you, uh, he hath said, to you who to Jesus uh, for refuge have fled? The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. God is not safe, but he is good, and he is holy. And because he is holy and good, he is our refuge and he is our hope. His reality, uh, his holiness, uh, just concluding with what David Wells says in his book, God in the Wasteland, God's holiness is a reality toward which we are all moving. For in the end, God's holiness will prove to be the final line of resistance to all that is wrong, all that is evil in the world. And this is the best line of all. The day is coming when truth will be placed forever on the throne and error on the scaffold. With that in mind, the only thing we can do is pray, come Lord Jesus, come. You think about that. Let's pray. Father, there are times when, Martin Luther, we come to your word or we enter into an experience and we would say, here we give up because we cannot make sense not only of what the prophet is saying, but we cannot make sense of what you are doing. But here your word assures us that though we may not understand, your understanding is perfect. You know what you are doing. You know best how to refine and how to test and how to purify us so that we are more and more reflecting the glorious image of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord God, not to avoid these difficult passages nor to create fanciful ideas of what they may mean, but with the help of your Holy Spirit, to mine them out, to dig out the truth, that even in our perplexity, you would give us faith to trust you in all things and in all ways. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.